you're listening to or watching the Mido podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And today our guest is Devin Schumann. We're actually really excited to talk to Devin. Devin is a genetic counselor, right, Devin? That's the correct. Okay. Yeah. I always mess it up whenever I talk to anyone between being a geneticist, a genetic counselor, because there's so many different professions that kind of along line up with that, right? Yeah, no, it's definitely not a like individual box. There's a lot of overlapping circles with all of that, but they do have at least distinct degrees. So once you have it, you're like, this is what I am. I am not a doctor. I cannot prescribe meds. Please don't ask me for any, right? (laughs) The unique thing about you is that you also have Mito, right? Yep. I have mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. Okay. Can you that just a, I know it's kind of hard any mitochondrial disease is is very intricate but is there an easy way to explain that so our listeners understand yeah so I very used to explaining it so I should be able to do it but let me know if it's confusing so mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome is something that's diagnosed primarily off a of muscle biopsy they actually look at the mitochondria in your body and they notice that they don't have enough of their mitochondrial DNA. And so with that mitochondria, right, they all have their own little DNA inside of them that's inherited from your mom, but we also have nuclear DNA from mom and dad that can encode things for the mitochondria. So I don't have enough mitochondrial DNA, but it's caused by a mutation I got from my mom and from my dad. So even though it affects my mitochondrial DNA, it's not inherited through women. For example, me and my brother both have it. And if I were to have a kid, they'd all be carriers, but they shouldn't be affected unless I magically found a partner that also carries the exact same gene that's not working. So for me, the DNA is written out in four letters. The letter G, I don't have enough of it. I have like 20% when you should have 100%. So there's just not enough of the letters to write the DNA within the mitochondria. So I don't have enough of the DNA, which then means the entire mitochondria doesn't work because it really relies on that DNA to make itself and function. That was, how, how old, sorry, you go ahead, Megan. <laughs> that was a perfect explanation. That was so good. <laughs> it's like not my first rodeo for that one, but I bet, but now I was diagnosed. So I didn't formally get diagnosed till after high school. So I had my muscle biopsy the summer after senior year because I put it off when I was in school. I didn't want to take off for it. I got a suspected diagnosis when I was 16 because my brother, who's two years older, he did a muscle biopsy. They were like, yep, this is his diagnosis. And then they looked at me and went, "Uh, that explains a lot. We think she has this too. At that point, I just thought I kept having mono over and over and over again because I was just really tired. Turns out it wasn't mono, it was mito, um, but I was kind of, I joke that I was on the coattails of that diagnosis. I don't know if they would have figured it out if it was only me, but my brother's symptoms are more severe. So he was kind of the guinea pig for the diagnostic odyssey. So I always say I'm indebted to him. If he wants cake, I will buy him cake. Like he went through all the pokes and prods and I just kind of came out the other end with an answer. But technically my first symptom was when I was born, me and my brother were preemie sized, even though we were full term, I was like four pounds, eight ounces or something. So I spent the first couple months of my life in the NICU just because I wasn't gaining weight. But then my mom was supposed to take me to CHOP, 
but instead took me home in between and I started gaining weight at home and I never went to chop. And then cycle 16 years later, we find out why. But I was kind of unaffected as a tiny human. There were signs, but not obvious ones. So technically my first symptom was like at birth, but then it didn't really pop up again until I got into middle school or high school. Wow. That's crazy. That's, and is it the same for your brother? Like what, when was his early, other than at birth, what symptoms? Yeah. So my brother didn't actually have to go to the NICU, um, but he had a fatty liver at birth. So there was still that note of like, most babies don't have a big liver, which as a genetic counselor, I know is a hallmark symptom of metabolic disorders, but when he seemed fine, they didn't really look into it. Um, and then for him, when he hit elementary school, um, he was diagnosed as on the autism spectrum, um, more of the social end of it. He's very, very smart, but definitely needs some extra help with school and writing, things like that. And we both heat stroked a lot as a kid, right? But other than that, didn't really have a lot of symptoms till we got to middle school. And then I always joke, like, as I was running the mile, it got harder to do so. As I was swimming, it got harder to swim. And sort of, I started losing those activities. And I think my junior year of high school, I missed 80 out of 180 days of school. So like, definitely a red flag. Something was going on. But at the time, we just thought I was getting sick a lot because we didn't realize that we were immune compromised. So we just figured, oh, they get sick a lot. She has migraines. That's probably what's happening. Looking back, I realized I was also just very overdoing it with school and kind of causing myself to mito crash over and over and over again because I didn't realize I shouldn't do everything everyone else did. And oddly enough, it didn't always work out that way that I could then go to school the next day. It'd be like, go to a school dance, miss three days of school because you're sleeping. Um, looking back, the signs are a lot more obvious than they were at the time. But for my brother, the key sign that kind of led to a biopsy was they gave him a medication for a different type of muscular dystrophy that they thought he had based on muscle weakness. And he had a very unique reaction to it. Muscles wasted away. And they were like, that doesn't happen we need to do a muscle biopsy and figure out what was going on. So that's, that's crazy. And it's interesting that you brought up, um, that you just thought you were getting mono over and over again. I've never like, I've never thought of that, but that makes perfect sense. Like the, the symptoms you have or that you express with mono is a lot like Mito, well, not actually- all Mito, but di- different versions of Mito. Well, and actually talking to, so I, I run in my free time, a Mito group for teens and young adults. So it's called Mito Friends on Facebook. And we have like 500 members between the two groups. We have teens and twenties and then twenties through forties. And like half of us are like, I thought I had mono at first, or it was triggered by mono, the flute. Like a lot of people have that same story where they got sick at some point in middle school or elementary school or high school, and they just never really bounce back. And so a lot of us, it's kind of a running joke that we can all trace it back to mono. And then we laugh now. We're like, well, what if I caught mono now? Would I even notice? Probably not. I would just think it's mito. Um, And the hard thing with mono is a lot of people, they just say, do you have the antibody for it? So once you've had it once, you'll have that antibody for life. So for me, they just kept going, oh, you must have just gotten it again. Not quite how that works, but I understand why they were confused at the time. Yeah, that's crazy. That's 
that's really interesting. <laughs> it's also hard though, because when do most kids get monotype stuff is middle school. And that's also when people are going through puberty or starting their periods, which is a major stress for the body. So are a lot of people also who didn't have major symptoms as a kid, they do notice they kind of have that shift when they're that teenager because it takes a lot of energy to become a teenager or adult. And so it's hard to know chicken or the egg, like, is it a coincidence with the mono or was that the trigger? Who yeah. knows? Huh. That's crazy. That's I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, and now that you say it, 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 it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, no one's ever said that before, but it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things I always say that's so nice about having peers is you just say things that you think is only you. And then everyone goes, oh, wait, me too. Like, it's just this running joke that we all have these random things in our history, our medical record, or things that we do to help ourselves that we just thought was a unique quirk, you know? And then we're like, oh, wait, half the group can't blow up balloons. That's probably muscle weakness. It's not just that I can't do balloons. And we're like, wait, half of us all share that. Or I never liked chewing gum. I thought it was tiring. I didn't realize that was anyone else. I just thought I didn't like gum. And then everyone else is like, I can't do it either. We always joke that like, there's just a thousand things like that. So sometimes when we do Mido Zoom calls with the teens, we'll play the game of what's something you think is only you. And then everyone is like, that's me too, just to kind of bring out those stories. I, I'm really glad that you also just now brought up chewing gum yeah. because you don't, you don't think of that, but it does take a lot of energy to continue. I mean, you don't think about it when, when you're doing it, but it takes a lot of energy to, to chew. Yeah. Um, that's, I'm, that's so interesting. We're going to have to do another podcast with all of these so that people can hear them. So it makes more sense because I'm sure not just like our adults or our teenagers that are listening, but parents bringing up their kids that want like their kids to have like do normal things or yeah. those are little things that you do have to take into consideration that you wouldn't automatically think of, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really fun game to play that with the group. Um, we, we end up doing it at least every couple of months. Someone says something and we all go, wait, that's not you. And then we just start going down the list of all the things. So one of them recently was drinking Gatorade to go to bed and everyone was like, what do you, why would you drink a sugar drink to go to bed? And like half of us on the call was like, sometimes if I just can't sleep, if I chug a thing of Gatorade, I conk right out. And a lot of us all said we did it. And like, I just thought I was the weirdo that put Gatorade by her bed some nights. And we just had this realization that maybe it has something to do with like, if you're low on energy, maybe your heart rate's up or your adrenaline's going or something. And so it's harder to sleep. Kind of like when you get overtired and then can't sleep or like, wait, maybe we're all just always overtired. We don't have an answer yet, but like half of us did it on the call. So it's definitely something. I wonder if it's because it's hard. It takes a lot of energy for your body to metabolize sugar and break it down. So yeah. maybe it tires you out a little bit while you're doing that. Um, for me, like I noticed if I eat a snack too, that's carbs, I'll fall right asleep. But if I eat like protein stuff, it doesn't have the same effect. And I don't, I don't know if it's the energy of that. Right. Or is it just, I was low on sugar, so I couldn't sleep. Huh. It's like, I, which direction? Yeah, no, I agree with Megan. That's exactly what I was going to say. Because yeah. you think about, and and I don't, I don't know if maybe you get like, well, it would be different. Because when you give kids sugar, they get really hyper and then they crash. Mm -hmm. and See, but we all fall asleep before 
we get hyper. It's like right afterwards. But it makes sense because your body's metabolizing that. It's working harder to to burn that. And so that that makes that would make sense to me. It's not something that I would ever think to do, but that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah, and it was just kind of a random thing we all noticed was that eating a snack before dinner sometimes helps too. But if we don't, like for me, I'll notice if I don't eat something right before bed, I'll wake up three hours later or four. My body's out of energy and it needs something. But if I drink that Gatorade or eat a snack right beforehand, I don't wake up three hours later. So it's just like my body's like, I need one last bit of fuel to make it through the night or some version of that. Yeah, huh, that's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so random things. So uh, I'm glad that you gave us your backstory for you and for your brother a little bit. So ha- is that what motivated you to become a genetic counselor? Or is that kind of just, how life flowed. So for me, I used to say I'd never seen a genetic counselor as part of my diagnostic odyssey. It's not true. I've just only seen one for like five minutes here, five minutes there. So it wasn't really like somebody I saw, saw they would pop in to do like a research consent or something like that. So I actually didn't know that genetic counseling was a profession because of Mito. I went to a free lunch talk in college and a genetic counselor was talking about how it was that mesh of medicine and psychology. It let you do a two-year master. So it wasn't med school, which seemed not like the best life decision with someone with Mito. Um, I was like, that's probably going to kill me if I try that. But I liked medicine probably because of my history with Mito. And I was like, I already find genetics cool. I'm already Googling all this stuff in my free time it's a two-year master's that's doable and you get time with patients. The whole job is about explaining things to patients and spending time with them and helping them get resources. To me, that's a lot more appealing than like surgery or prescribing meds or five-minute appointments with your primary care doctor. Not that it's per se your primary care doctor's fault they have no time with you. Like that's a whole different issue. But for me, she, she was just talking like this was kind of the perfect fit. It clicked for me. And I was like, I went after after, it's like, it clicked for me too. I want to do this. And I'm actually still friends with that genetic counselor um, who did that presentation when in like 2011, she actually just referred me to do a TED talk on mitochondrial DNA, which actually just came out yesterday by surprise or two days ago. And 10 years later, she was like, I think you'd be perfect for this and still a friend running around. Um, but yeah, for me, I just, it clicked. I was like, that sounds good. So I shadowed and volunteered in an office to make sure it really was something I could do with energy levels and not to dive down a path before I knew it was the right fit. And by the time I made it out of undergrad, I was like, sold, I'm doing this. I took a gap year, went to grad program for, it was only 20 months long because the second summer doesn't count. And you take one board exam and you're good for life. As long as you do continuing education credits, which I get at the UMDF conference every year anyways. So it's really cool because with genetic counseling, right, you have to have an undergrad first, but it's not this med school. It's not this PhD. To me, it felt like a very practical use of my energy because you just learn classes that teach you how to do the job. And so it felt very doable for me. And I think having Mito gave me a little bit of an advantage because I already knew a lot of genetic stuff, knew about like how do hospitals work? How do pre-auth works? Like sadly, you already know that stuff if you have Mito, um, at least a little. But for me, it's nice because you also, you don't get limited to one field like in medicine. 
So I, my first job was at an autism center doing autism genetics and research. My second job was at a high-risk pregnancy center. And my current job is telemed doing fertility and preconception. So talking to couples going through IVF, couples doing carrier screening, using egg and sperm donors, people who are pregnant. I made the transition to telemed because not surprisingly, COVID happened um, and being immune compromised, I did not feel like clinic was the ideal location for me, especially because I was living in Vegas and Vegas healthcare is a whole different ballpark. Um, so my plan when I lived there was if I got COVID to drive to California and check myself in at Rady Children's, um, where I knew what they knew what Mido was and that uh, they would keep, like help me. Um, I was like, I'll just go to Dr. Haas. He'll, he'll save me. I've only chatted with him in clinic, but I'm sure that they can call him if I show up. Um, but I'm kind of glad I did the switch. It was surprisingly easy to do. And this is a definitely better energy use type of a job without commuting and being able to, if you don't have a patient, go take a nap or go take a shower, eat more food compared to in clinic where you're kind of always on your feet and you're always on call. So I really, I do appreciate my new job. If anything, it's too nice. It's going to be hard to go back to clinic after this when COVID ends, whenever that is. Um, <laughs> eventually it'll end, hopefully, <laughs> but for now, it's kind of a cool, fun job. And, you know, I get to just meet people in their houses and cars and help them out where they are. And they don't have to take off of work often. They don't have to get childcare. So I think it's just great for patients on all ends. Like it's good for us, but it's also really helpful for patients because having had taken off a lot of work to go to the doctor's office, it would have been really easy if I could have just shut my office door, done it, and then gone back to work, mm -hmm. you know? So it's fun. I love it. I love talking to people just because I get it, you know, like usually if someone says something, I'm like, I know at least one friend who's in that same shoes and not that I project, but I think it helps knowing like I've seen a hundred people go through this kind of thing or talk to a bunch of people about, do you have, what do you do when you want to have another child, but your first child has Mido, how do you think about this? And so when patients are thinking about it, it's like, usually they don't say anything that's super surprising because usually somebody in the Mido world's already said it before that, you know, so it's, it's cool. I love it. It's fun. And it's a very accessible job with energy issues. So I highly recommend people to consider it when they're considering med school or nursing, even I'm like, this could be an, an option that gives you more options to adapt the job as your needs change, which I don't know if there's that many jobs in the world that allows you that kind of flexibility. That's true. I, I mean, especially like with COVID, I think that that's opened a lot of really good doors for people. Um, I know it's been frustrating for a lot of people, but for, and I, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for what I think I would have been feeling if Angie was still alive, but it would have made life so much more simple. Um, like you said, spending hours and hours at doctor's offices and driving time and being stuck in traffic and yeah. you don't get that time back. So I feel like the, the Zoom doctor visits and things like that um, are helpful for like a Mito community or, or you know. Yeah. Now I know the Mito docs are fighting to keep it approved by insurance because they've just found it as a game changer for so many patients. And no longer do you also only have to see doctors down the street from your house either. So it opens that door because... How many families do we know who drive eight hours to go see a doctor? My doctor is in New York City that I see. So like, 
it's a long drive. I fly out there if I want to see him. Um, and that's, that's not a, a one day, one afternoon project. <laughs> no, that's what I was going to say. It definitely opens the door to being able to see doctors. I know my son was diagnosed with a Milan syndrome and we don't have any specialists here in California. And so we're able to make appointments with, you know, people on the East coast that do specialize in this. And, um, there are some laws that don't allow some doctors to see other patients out of state through telemed. So sometimes it's a little tricky, but in general, I think it definitely opens the door for mainly people with rare diseases because there just aren't that many specialists all over. So it's definitely been a good thing. And even just thinking about people who are pregnant, I mean, if they have to go see their OBGYN, see a high-risk center, see their own doctors, I mean, they're taking days, if not weeks off for appointments. And if you need your paying job, that's a lot of money lost when pregnancy is not cheap to begin with, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's kind of like most people's quick dose of to like what we deal with all day long, right? And it's, it kind of helps everybody, of course, I did see a cardiologist on telemed and I did have to do a lot of like acknowledging verbally that I know that cardiology can really only do so much on a computer. (laughs) She was like, you know, I can't look at your heart. I'm like, I fully acknowledge this. I'm just establishing care because I've moved. Like there are obvious limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Yeah, totally. But for a lot of appointments, you don't need a physical exam depending on who you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, I think for us with Dr. Haas, even, um, I mean, we go in there and he goes over all our medical information, all the information from the other doctors with the other tests. And I mean, he does examine Troy, um, but it's mainly like, okay, how are you feeling? How are the, you know, and it's like, that's really great for telemed because otherwise, you know, you're waiting and the doctors, but yeah, obviously cardiology, pulmonology, there are certain things that you got to get in there. Um, I was like, I know I'm pushing my luck with this appointment. Like I fully acknowledge that. (laughs) Cool. Well, did you, um, Megan, did you have any more questions? Um, you know, I was just going to, I was going to ask, you know, how having Mito, um, kind of gives you a little bit of an edge with genetic counseling, but you, that was something you actually went through because I think that's so important when, um, you're seeing a doctor or a counselor or different things like that. And they have that experience. It just completely enriches and they're so much more knowledgeable on so many things than someone who, you know, has not gone through it or does not have a rare disease. I mean, you said you're doing um, IVF and patients with that kind of thing. And a lot of times people are going through that because they have, you know, a rare disorder in their family or something like that. And you having that experience is, so important and I'm sure it makes them feel so much better having those discussions with you. Yeah, I feel like we do a lot more like laughing about stuff with patients because they'll, you know, they'll be like, I'm like, so you both tested positive for this condition. They're like, our kid has it. I'm like, so I'm not going to explain it to you because that would be a waste of your time because you probably know more than I do. And they laugh and I'm like, like, you just know to say that because you've been on the other end of that equation. And like, for me, I think what's nice about it is, I mean, of course, do you tell every patient? No. Sometimes they just get it from the things that you say, though, like jokes like that. And I think when I was a student and I was going to grad school, they were like, every interview was like, would you tell a patient that you have mito? And the correct answer back then was no, right? Like you shouldn't do that because that makes it about you and not them. But I like had a patient 
with Mido at my last job. And she was like, well, do you know of any good resources? And I was like, all right, full stop. If I tell you that to go talk to the UMDF, they're going to send you back to me because I'm the only Mito person in the city. So I have mitochondrial disease, you know, like I was just like, this is stupid. I'm not going to dodge around this. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that would happen sometimes when I'd be through like a really long journey with a family with a rare disease disorder diagnosis. And like, by the end of it, they'd be like, how do you get this? And I'm like, I have one too. Like, that's why I get it. And you can tell that it immediately just, it's a breath of relief for most patients, even if it's not the same diagnosis. And I mean, we've all felt the same. If a doctor candidly says, Hey, I actually deal with something too. They tend to be good doctors. Like it tends to be a good sign. And I think from the doctor side of it, I get it. They're like, well, don't make it all about you. Don't be like, well, I have this. And it's been really hard. Like, duh. But <laughs> just the little things, I think it's kind of interesting. Cause at the time I was like, I wouldn't tell anyone. And now I'm like, oh, I tell everyone. Um, because it's just, I think it's kind of an arbitrary line in the sand that comes from a place of ableism, to be honest. Like it kind of comes from a place of disability isn't something to be shared or talked about. And for me, I always say I was very lucky. I got diagnosed in high school, right when I was kind of figuring out like how to be an adult, how to be a human, like, who am I? And so for me, when I went to college, I joined the disability community. So it was never like Mito is this diagnosis that sent me to the hospital. It's like Mito is this awesome community of friends and I learned disability theory and I identify as disabled. I don't think it's a bad word. And like, I think for me, it put a different spin on it, on the diagnosis that I think made a big difference. And as part of the reason that when I went to my first conference and I met other people with it, I was like, oh, of course we are staying in touch. And we made a Facebook group that then like 10 years later blew up. But like, I don't know if I hadn't been at a college that had a big disability community where it was a positive, we all hung out, we're still friends with each other. If I would have thought like, I want to go meet other friends with this. But I think it makes it so different. Like, it's so different when you're like, this is the reason I have really good friends. Like some of my friends, we've been in each other's weddings and people's babies are named after each other. Like these are lifelong friendships that I never would have had without Mido. So like, yeah, does Mido suck some days? Sure. I mean, like, are there a thousand negatives about it? And is it hard when we lose our friends? Of course. But I'm also so glad I had that spin on it, that perspective on it, because I think it is a lot harder when you don't know anyone else with it and you're stuck at home and it's just a cause of all the things you've lost instead of something else which is why I love like podcasts like this. Cause it's like, look, we're all in this together. Like we're all like, this is such a bigger thing than just like a sh- thing on a sheet of paper as to why you see a doctor. Absolutely. And we always talk about how, you know, being friends with other parents that have children with Mido and how helpful it is to us. So just that, you know, group of friends that is going through the same experience, it just enriches your life. And it's super informative. You learn so much that you wouldn't learn from just, that diagnostic paper, you know, those results that you get. So yeah, that is amazing. And it's, it's fun too. Cause it's like, you meet all of these amazing people you never would have met otherwise. Like we always joke on paper. Some of my friends, I'm like, we don't have any like points of contact that would be like, this is why you'd be best friends with this person. Right. We live in totally different time zones, have different backgrounds, different everything. And yet 
we're best friends 10 years later. Absolutely. And I just, Ashley and I wouldn't know each other yeah. unless it was for Angie and Troy. Yeah. And that's what I mean, right? Like you can't discount the negatives, but I'm like, could I pass up all these friends? Like, no, I kind of really like them. Like they're, they're kind of really cool people. I'm glad I have them in my life. Yeah. I feel super fortunate for the community that, that I found. And, and it's been, I'm not going to lie. It's been really hard not have Angie. Cause I don't have I don't have that to, to bond with anymore. And, um, yeah. but I feel really lucky that even though she's gone, yeah. I still have my friends. I have Megan, I have Christina, I have everybody, everyone that came with that group. And I have all of the yeah. people that I met over social media. Like I still yeah. get text messages of kids and, and I get phone calls all the time and, and I just feel really lucky for that obviously like you're right this isn't a world that you when you were a little kid you ever dreamed of being a part of but now that you are a part of it it does have some beautiful things within it that have grown from it Um, just so glad for social media because otherwise we just have the things that sucked right like you know I mean people can alone and that was another reason why we started the podcast is because we would I mean we have a you would think that in San Diego we'd have this huge Mito community and we I mean we have a lot of support but we don't have a lot of Mito kids or Mito adults Um, and so whenever we would get together to plan like our events like our Mito 5k and all things like that we would sit in the room and realize like none of us were getting all the same benefits and like how is that even possible like we are all literally within 20 miles of each other and most of us within five miles of each other and I don't understand how we're not getting the same stuff and so that's why we started this because there's all these hidden things that you only know about when you talk to your friends right when you're bullshitting over coffee and so um yeah and and we just wanted to bring that community closer and I think that's the best thing about social media is that it has made this like humongous world a little bit smaller and then we're hoping with the podcast it would it would bring that that world even smaller just so that everyone everyone feels that exactly what you were saying like even if we don't get to meet every single person that listens to this podcast I hope that we've been able to enter their their house or their car or something to listen to this and make them feel not as alone. And I mean, I, I, I think you have to have been successful. I mean, at the end of the day, for every person that reaches out, there's probably five that aren't. I mean, that's just the reality of everything is like for every person who is commenting and posting on a group, there's 20 people reading it not saying anything, but who are still there reading it. So obviously still participating and getting something from it. And I always find it really funny when I go to the Mito conferences, because like the, I'll run the teen room and like all these people will be like, hi, Devin. And I'm like, I have a thousand Facebook friends. Who are you? Again? Cause just cause like, I am, I'm dyslexic. I'm horrible with names and faces and the little icon on Facebook, you're this big, like you're now a human give me a second to connect the dots. And once you do, I'm good. But when you add the fact that I'm bad with names, I'm like, you change your Facebook profile picture. It'll take me a day to figure out you're the same person. Cause I'm like, you were the blue icon. Now you're the green icon. Like awareness week is great, but horrible because everyone has the same icon. Suddenly I'm like, I'm screwed. I'm out. Like I can't do this. 
but like, I mean, just the fact that people say, hi, Dev. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like just existing and posting apparently made a difference because they remember who you are. Yeah. And the cool thing about teens with Mido is that like now I became a Janet counselor. So then I bring that back. My one friend's in law school. So now she brings that back. We're like, all right, what's the deal with this new law? She's like, let me call my boss, you know? And you do have, we have physical therapists, we have nurse practitioners, doctor, like it's becoming a world where there are a lot of people who've done stuff who can then bring it back. And the same goes for parents, right? Like when you just happen to get a parent who's a disability lawyer and their kid's diagnosed, you're like, perfect. We have a new resource, right? And not that that's the purpose of getting diagnosed, but it's, (laughs) you do find that at all the conferences though. It's like, you're seeing more and more parents giving the talks because having lived it and having the life they had by coincidence before this, we're kind of our own best resources, like you said. And more and more, you're seeing parents giving the talks at these conferences and not just a doctor. It's a parent saying, this is how you maneuver the system because they know better than the doctor does usually, you know? I think it's cool to see that shift, to see more podcasts and patient-led stuff because we are all professional patients or professional caregivers and you do know a lot more than people who had one lecture in college. Like, I'm going to be frank. I've had those lectures. They are short. There's not a lot of info there. Like a lot of what I jokingly do is I'm a professional Googler. I know how to look at my patient's conditions to help teach them about it, but that doesn't mean I know what all of them are off the top of my head. So I definitely don't know more than my patients do if they have one of these. Like, of course I don't. Hopefully meds moving in that direction where all doctors are starting to admit that too, though I think it's a little slower than the genetic counselors admitting it, but I may be biased. <laughs> no, I think you're, you're right. <laughs> uh, well, do, you have any, <laughs> do you have anything that you would like to add or any advice that you have for our listeners? So, I mean, I always say like, go on social media. It's not a scary place, but I always also have a warning for it, which is like, take into account who's posting, right? I mean, the hard part is for a lot of us, we feel the need to post when we're having our hardest days or when we're up at 2 a.m. or when something new pops up and it's scary and we have a lot on our plate. And so I think it can also be hard for new people joining a social media group or anything, Twitter, anything at all. You tend to see a lot of people at their worst and it can make you scared and not want to connect because you join a group and you just see everyone complaining and you're like, this is not what I want. But in that group are also people who are going through things similar to you or might not be having the worst day. And I always, I try to get our group to post the fun stuff too, because I think it does help. And I'll admit my other soapbox for social media is cite your sources. Um, in our group, I always I jokingly say it's because a lot of people are students, right? High schoolers, college, right? Like, we all like to cite our sources a lot in our groups. So if I'm going to tell you like, Hey, that gene's probably not your answer. I'm going to send you a link as to why I say that. I, I kind of wish that the adult groups had more of that. And to be honest, I think there's a lot of fake information going around and that does make it hard too, when you're looking into stuff to kind of, how do you sort through it? So I'm the big proponent of, if I'm going to ex- say like this gene probably isn't your answer because it's autosomal recessive and you only have one mutation, I'm going to try to like explain it all or send you a link being like, this is where it says that so that you can help. So that's always my soapbox for anyone on social media is like, 
say why you think it. And it's fine if you say my doctor told me, like that's a valid source or in my experience. But I think sadly, there's a lot of people arguing over stuff that sometimes there isn't a source. There's not, no one's talking about why they think it and they're just kind of going in circles. And yeah. I think that can also make it hard for new people joining. When you see those spirals happening, you're like, oh, I don't know if this is the right group. And sometimes it's hard to stick it out and get to the part where you're making long-term friends with people and all of that. Um, yeah. I think it's important when you go into social media to treat it as um, you're a researcher. I mean, you already know as, as if, if you are the person with Mido or if you're a parent or, or someone, a loved one, Yeah. you need to go into it thinking of it that way because you are already becoming that person right even if it's on google i mean there's going to be false information all over the place it's the internet it's at your fingertips like you have to do your research don't and and usually like when i would go on social media if i asked a question or if i had a question and didn't ask it i would read through all of the comments and and i would see like what what has come up multiple times by different people um what let's use like the cocktail for an example yeah right everyone's going to be different there's no right or wrong answer so you would go through it and saying okay this is the the commonality between what vitamin person's using so definitely I agree with you and 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 it is a scary place it really is especially like this because because you're learning everyone is learning about their disease and you also have to remember no matter what if you're on social media and you're trying to figure out whatever dis, um, disease dysfunction, whatever is affecting you, that every single person is going to be different. Yes. Yeah. There's no cookie cutter. Just okay. because it works for someone does not mean it's going to work for somebody else. And that's okay. Yeah. But you need, you need to do your trial and error. Um, yeah. and, and if you are offended or if you don't like something, it doesn't mean that you have to comment. It doesn't mean that you have yeah. to get on your own soapbox. Like, a lot of, you can leave things alone. Um, but and I, I always use me as the example. Me and my brother on paper have very different symptoms. We have the same two mutations. We're supposed to be identical and we yeah. are not even close. Like we have and very have, little overlap. I have to say, I, I feel really, really lucky and fortunate that I I never had a bad experience. I had not let me take that back. I had one bad experience on social media, but it was on a G-tube uh, group and yeah. um, it was like devastating, but yeah. I got over that because the woman that was making the remarks had no idea what she was talking about. And she was just an internet troll. And you have to be able to understand that and, and, and recognize that. But overall, my experience was great. And I, I met I've had a lot of great suggestions while Angie was alive. Yeah. And the way I always put it is people are people, right? Like just because you share a diagnosis doesn't mean they're going to be your best friend, or, you know, or that they know what they're talking about. And doctors are people too. Like they also have bad days and slip up and say things wrong. And I am the first, maybe having been a patient as a provider to admit when I'm wrong, to call someone back and be like, I totally misspoke. Um, and I think I probably do that because I've been a patient. So I'm like, you can't not follow up on that. But everyone has an off day. Like, you know, and I think it's easy to also see a lot of animosity towards providers on those groups as well. And I, my life approach is emotion validation. Every emotion is valid. 
it comes from a valid place doesn't always mean what you do with it is appropriate or okay right but usually if someone's angry at somebody even if it seems misguided like the anger is coming from a real place you know but i think people we don't always think about that for our doctors is you know just because the doctor didn't meet us where we needed them to unless they just full-on insult you right like maybe it's just people who didn't mesh and not this healthcare provider who has failed me as much as it feels that way sometimes after you've seen a lot of them and i've I've had the exception to the rule, like a doctor who told me that genetics wasn't real. And I was like, so uh, to follow up on that, I'm in your grads and at your grad school for genetics. So it's cute that you say that, but I'm going to disagree. Like there's always the exception story, right? But I think, you know, it's something I always try to remind people in my group of, of like, I might love my doctor and he might be not the right fit for you. And that's okay unless a doctor does something unethical, I wouldn't say don't go see them. Yeah. We all need very different things on any given day. Yeah. Well, Devin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate being able to talk to you and hearing your story and all about genetic counseling, how you got there. Um, So uh, thank you all also for, for listening to us today. This is the Mito Podcast. If you have any questions or if you have any suggestions for future podcasts, um, you can find us at mitopodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and you can find our podcast on Spotify, mitopodcast.com. And I'm probably, there's probably one more, but I don't remember what it is. You've got your bases covered there. I love it. You can find us. (laughs) <laughs> My Facebook group is only on Facebook, so we're, we're not that helpful, but it's Mito Friends for teens and, and young us, adults. You can look us up too. Tell us too, Devin, what your um, TED Talk is called. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't actually pick the name of it, so I'm going to caveat the title with that. It's, it's called The Genes You Don't Inherit from Your Parents. But you do inherit mitochondrial DNA from your mom. So like, I was not, (laughs) I was like, I was not consulted on that. Like half the comments on YouTube are, that title's wrong. And I'm like, I know, but it's just a little animated clip about mitochondrial DNA and how it works and stuff. So it was really fun to do. It was a good, a good moment. Watch it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love TED Talks. That's like my, my bucket list. I want to do a TED Talk someday. I don't yeah, know. The TED I'm... educational video ones, anyone can be a topic expert. So if you have a topic you're passionate about, like if you can write a 650 word script, like they might just go for it. That's how I did it. Like it was just a fun topic you know a lot about. Awesome. Well, thank you again. We appreciate it. Yes. It was really you. nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you, you as well.